and the room just got way brighter, and uh, it's going to take me a second to adjust. Wow. All right, there's lights in my eyes now. All right, um, let's go Psalm 41. Psalm 41. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. Uh, but chief among those good reasons that he gives us his word is that he uses the scriptures to make himself known to his people. Like, that's, that's the top shelf reason why God has given us the Bible. And so uh, if, if you don't have a copy of your own that you can go chasing after knowing him, that puts you at a disadvantage, and we would love to fix that this morning. You can take that physical one home, and I'll call it the best part of my week. Um, so we've been back in the Psalms now for a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got a handful of Sundays before we were planning to start something new in September, and, and we're committed to knocking out a few Psalms, uh, or at least a few Psalms off the list. 150 uh, whenever we we get the chance to and so one of these days through both the kindness of the Lord and just sheer attrition we'll finally get there all right uh, but uh, and what a day that'll be right like some of you will be dead by then but what a day that'll be all right um, <laughs> it'll be great we'll celebrate it all the same uh, now if you haven't been around as we've been studying the Psalms together um, they're a little different uh, a lot different uh, than the more linear didactic stuff that we tend to focus our time and our attention on reading and, and preaching through the narrative histories or the prophets or and especially the New Testament letters the epistles they all have the kind of kind of the same arc to them all right this grand thing is true about who God is and what God has done therefore go and live consistently with that truth all right and if you don't live consistently with that with that truth you're a stupid head all right that's pretty much how Paul writes, all right? all right? But the Psalms are poetry. The Psalms don't work like that. They, 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 uh, they, they need to be handled like poetry. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not instructive. They certainly are. We're about to see that today. It just means that instruction is not their primary purpose. It's a secondary purpose. Instruction is further down the priority list for the Psalm writers. I like to try to explain it this way. Rather than prescriptively doing what the writer did, the Psalms are more about empathetically feeling what the writer felt. For good and for ill, the Psalms are an invitation into the heart and the headspace of God's people as they are wrestling with a specific moment in their life and history. And we don't always get to know what that moment is. Sometimes we do. Sometimes the Psalms spell that out for us uh, and actually tell us what's going on and what the setting and the context is. But most of the time, that's not the case. What is the case, though, is that those moments often feel incredibly familiar to us. Right? I think the more honestly you read the Psalms, the more and more often you find yourself thinking, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what, what that feels like. That was Thursday for me. Or, or I, I walked through a season like that last fall. Or, or maybe even, yeah, I'm going through a season like that right now. And that's why for many of you, the Psalms end up being your favorite part of the Bible. If I were to ask you to, to tell me what your favorite verse is, you would, many of you would quote back to me a psalm. And I think the reason for that is because the Psalms give a voice to something deep inside of us that's not always easy to articulate, at least publicly so. But unlike us, the psalm writers, they don't ever seem to be too worried about trying to fig like filter out their crazy bits. We do that in our culture. We can't let anybody see the real us and know the real us. The psalm writers don't seem to care about that. It's just raw emotion laid bare. 
And we're going to look at one of those kind of moments this morning. The writer of this psalm, he seems to know what is good and right. seems to know what is, uh, what is pleasing to the Lord and what will bring about the greatest possible blessing in his own life. But there are also a bunch of people and circumstances swirling around him, fighting against him trusting those good things. It's causing him to doubt the goodness of what he knows to be true. You ever been standing in a moment like that? I've I've never stood in a moment like that. When you know what is good, when you know what is actually supposed to bring blessing, but it's hard to trust that an actual reward sits on the other end of that moment. Yeah, welcome to Psalm 41. That's exactly what we're about to get into. So let's look at it. We've got another superscript this week, which means we've got to start there. Psalm 41, starting at the little superscript, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of who? Of David. Super complicated, right? Like so much detail laid out for us. Two little sentences. <laughs> That's all it is. So the choir master, period. A psalm of David, period. So we've already spent a good bit of time uh, in other psalms looking at these exact two points, all right? Um, they were the same two mentioned in pretty much the same way uh, in Psalm 11 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Remember my really fancy slide that I didn't have? All right, that one. Yeah, all right. And so we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it, like explaining those things this morning. You can go back and do the podcast thing or the video thing. All right, but here's what we know. We know that David wrote it, but we're not told when. We're not told when. Based on some things he's going to say in this psalm, uh, it's probable that he's already the king by this point. David did write some of his songs, psalms before he became, before he ascended into, uh, um, to the throne. All right? But most of them he wrote after he had become king. So it's probable that he is, he's already the king. But also, it's likely he seems to be at, in a time where he's really, really sick. All right? All right? And so, uh, in, in addition to the author, though, we're also told that the psalm has a specific purpose. Said so it's addressed to the choir master, right? The leader of the congregational worship of Israel. And so what we know is that this is expressly written as a song for God's people to sing as a public act of worship to the Lord. It's not just a poetic moment. It's not David's greatest hits. No, they, <laughs> excuse me. David, as the king, is putting specific words in the mouth of the congregation of Israel in order to shape them in order to shape what they're singing about and how they're praising the Lord. And so, what are those specific words he's putting in their mouth? Well, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. All right, so those first two sentences there uh, have the potential, I think, uh, to be picked up with and run in a hundred different directions. Did you catch it? Blessed is the one who considers the what? The poor. So whatever prepackaged ideas and worldview you happen to walk in the door with this morning, they are going to be the largest factor in determining how you just heard what I just read. 
Blessed is the one who considers the poor. All right, if you walked in this morning with a little bit of a social justice bent to you, all right, if you're the type that, that walks, that comes to the Bible looking for things that will validate a desire, I think a good desire in you to fart, uh, fight for the marginalized and fight for the oppressed. All right, if, if you're the, the type that wants to be able to hold up biblical authority and call everybody else to action who doesn't carry that same bent as you, congratulations, you got a verse. That's exactly what David is talking about here. That's exactly what he's celebrating. He could not be more clear in this moment. God's people, hear me, are supposed to have a certain posture towards those who need help. Period. It's not open for debate. It's not an invitation to to discuss your own personal list of, you know, yeah buts and qualifiers. Circumstantial qualifiers. You want me to say the quiet part out loud? Because I will. Any attempt to try to get out from under this expectation on God's people is cowardly and conniving. It reduces real people with real needs to being nothing more than a barrier to your own greater good. The Bible's clear. Deal with it. Into discussion. And when they carry that right posture... God's people are to have a specific posture towards the poor. And when they carry that right posture, David is equally clear. God blesses them. There's divine promise buried in these first two sentences of Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who does this. But here's the challenge, though. Depending on whatever your political leanings are, they probably dictated who you're who you pictured in your head when I said the word poor, right? Can we be honest about that? Isn't that how the world works? That word in the Hebrew, it's bigger than just material possessions. Way bigger. It's not less than that. It certainly includes those who lack material possessions, but it's also way more than that. It also includes the idea of weakness, of being unable to fight on your own behalf because you're powerless or too small. So we're talking here not only about the poorest of society, materially speaking, but we're also talking about the ones in society that the society around us have dehumanized and believe don't deserve a voice. David could not be more clear in this moment. God's people are supposed to have a certain posture towards those who need help, period. It's not open for debate, and it's not an invitation for you to add your personal list of yeah, buts, and circumstantial qualifiers. You want me to say the quiet part out loud? Because I will. It doesn't matter which side of a public argument you're more inclined to side with. It doesn't matter which side of a public argument happens to have the most votes in a given moment. If you have to rob an image bearer of God of his or her humanity in order to justify how you treat them, the God of perfect justice will not deem you to be on the right side of his final accounting of history. End of discussion. David says that when God's people carry this correct posture towards the weak, they are blessed. There's divine promise buried in the first two sentences of Psalm 41. Oh man, that Wooder guy, he just likes to pick fights with people, right? I guess he goes around looking for ways to make things awkward. Yeah, sometimes I do. And also, 
I'm also just getting started because uh, there's a couple other ways that verse 1 gets misread and misused and abused. That word considers, it's just as important in the Hebrew as poor is. It's not a mere thoughtfulness. It's not uh, a simply a paying attention to. No, that word in the Hebrew carries the idea of prudence. Prudence. If you walked in here thinking that the answer to every problem is to throw more resources at it, a divinely inspired King David would disagree with you. Prudence. Haven't, you, haven't we all been in a situation where you're just standing there watching somebody else continue to make the problem worse and worse and worse, dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper, all because they never bothered to stop, reassess, ask, ask if they're actually helping in that moment, and then seek out an actual solution to the problem? They just keep doubling down because, you know, compassion dictates that they keep their foot on the gas. I've been there. I've done that. But the consideration that David is celebrating here, it assumes that the good you want for the poorest and weakest of the world outpaces your personal desire to be seen as compassionate. Now, let's be honest. There are a lot of people in this world who care far more about the optics and the perception of compassion than they do about actually helping people. I've been guilty of that. Am I the only honest one? No, the blessing of God, it does not belong to those who simply talk a big game about the poor. Nor does it belong to those who are willing to help, but yeah, really only as long as it doesn't cost me something I actually value. No, it belongs to those who actually help them. It belongs to those who actually fight on their behalf. See, according to David, there is true blessing in a true effort. But it's that blessing part that I think gets bent out of shape by another group of folks. What exactly is the blessing that David is talking about here? Well, there are some. There are some who try and point to places like Psalm 41 and argue that it's another route into the kingdom of God. Meaning, do this and you will be rightly reconciled to God. And we got to talk about this because, I mean, this word pops up 26 other times in the book of Psalms. And <laughs> all of them are translated in the English Standard Version uh, as, uh, as blessed. Uh, but the word literally just means happy, content, uh, pleased. I think David is saying that God's people live the happiest possible life when they actually do what God expects them to do, right? And does anybody really balk at that idea? Like, we, we try to pretend that we're smart, but we really just make a mess of things when we start trying to twist things into weird shapes. Uh, that, do we really believe that God is smart enough and forward planning enough to actually build out his world to produce a depth of joy that is unmatched in this world when we do what he says? Like, we think he's that smart? We think, we think he's that good? I think he probably is, right? So if David is talking about happiness in this moment, why, why do some people argue that it's way more than that? Well, mostly because of everything that came after that first sentence. Do you remember reading it? There was a lot of, there was a lot of loaded promises in there. Um, chiefly, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. And so, what kind of trouble are we talking about here? And what does David mean by deliverance? Well, some argue that David must surely, surely be talking about salvation here. And they'll make the claim that before Jesus stepped onto the scene, because, you know, he hadn't stepped onto the scene yet, people 
were not saved by grace through faith in the sacrificial death of the Messiah, the Son of God. They will make the claim that people could work their way into a reconciled relationship with God by successfully fulfilling all of his commands. And so in addition to the Ten Commandments and in addition to the Levitical law, they'll point to places like Psalm 41 and argue that a prudent serving of the poor is one of the requirements on the list. And if you diligently uphold the requirements, God will deliver you. That's the logic. Now, the leadership of our church is not in that theological tribe. Hope that you aren't either. Because Jesus and John and Paul and James and Peter and the writer of Hebrews, they all make it crystal clear in their own writings that no one in all of history except for Jesus has ever actually fulfilled the law. And because no one has ever actually fulfilled the law, all people everywhere throughout all of history, including the Old Testament faithful, including all the ones we hold up as getting it right, can only ever be reconciled to God by grace through faith, purchased for us by the perfect righteousness of Jesus, his sacrificial death on the cross to soak up the punishment for our sin, and his resurrection from the dead to secure our own personal future resurrection. And I know that might feel like a belabored point to some people, Especially if you've been hanging out long enough to, uh, around our church long enough to learn how to tell the difference between the gospel and false versions of it. But the sad and unfortunate truth about church history is that terrible theology always eventually pops up again with new, trendier names and the same bad logic. It just keeps recurring. There have been various times in history, and I can point to some groups today, who would hold up Psalm 41.1 and make the argument that reconciliation with God is chiefly found in fulfilling so, like social justice. Do these things, and God is now happy with you. You're one of his people. And that by actively participating in these causes, one is made right with God. So for the sake of clarity this morning, there is a line that must be drawn between necessary posture flowing out of God's people in a natural way and a pathway to reconciliation for sinners to have right standing with a holy God. There's a difference between those two things. A prudent consideration of the poor cannot save someone, period. It does not cause God to suddenly see you as pleasing to him in a sea of everyone else's selfishness. So what in the world does a prudent consideration of the poor accomplish? Well, in addition to actually helping people, in addition to producing happiness in the life of the one on the the giving end of that prudence, according to Psalm 41, 1 through 3, it also seems to be highly celebrated and rewarded by God. He delights in watching it happen and lavishly gives to those who participate. Verse 1, the Lord delivers him. Verse 2, the Lord protects him and keeps him. Verse 3, the Lord sustains him. Also, we see in verse 2 that apparently everybody else in the community sees the blessing on the life of the faithful. The Bible is clear, like absolutely clear. God notices when his people consider the poor and he responds to them with blessing. Is that blessing a material prosperity? Yeah, sometimes it seems to be. Is that blessing health and long life? Yeah, sometimes it seems to be. Is that blessing a respect from others in the community? Yeah, sometimes it seems to be. Are any or all of those things certain results of merely you checking off the consider the poor box? No. 
But God does tend to bless his people for this. And David knows it. David knows it, and he wants to trust it. But if you remember, I said that this psalm is about him struggling to trust that reality because of some other stuff swirling on in his life. And we're introduced to that other stuff in the next few verses. Look at verse 4. It says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. So this is the obvious reason why uh, we, we think that David is pretty sick right now whenever he's writing this. We can't pinpoint a time in his life when this actually happened, but this seems to be what's happened. We don't, we don't know when this occurred, but it's clearly what he's talking about. He's describing a moment, painting a pretty vivid picture actually of him on his sickbed. He's begging God to make him better. And he even has people coming in to visit him, but they're not nice people. Do you see that? They're maliciously whispering in the shadows, hey, when's he going to die? That's a fun day. They come and visit, but the words they speak, they're empty. They praise him to his face, but David knows better. They leave his bedside and immediately go out and use their insider knowledge of the situation to try to advance themselves out in the community. Look at verse 8. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. All right, so apparently everybody's got a theory about why King David is sick and whether or not he's going to recover. Let it be known. That whether it's the year 2023 or 1000 BC, politics hasn't changed, right? Everybody thinks they're a pundit. Everybody's got a, a vocal opinion about the health and the capacity of the king. But it goes a step beyond that. It's not just general population. In verse 9, David says that even a close friend of his has turned against him. And he says it in a way that, that hopefully perked the ears of all the good little church kids in the room. In John 13, we see these same words again. Right after Jesus finished washing the disciples' feet, he quotes this verse, Psalm 41.9, in talking about how Judas is about to betray him. The, the one who ate my bread turned his heel against me. David has a close friend plotting against him. But church, Jesus' friend actually pulled it off. He actually pulled it off. Does it, make, does it make sense now why David would be trying to recite to himself over and over again why he believes and what he believes about God and the blessing of God on those who are faithful? Why, why, why he would be trying to run over the logic in his head again and again and again about the promises of God? Would you be doing the same thing? I think I would be doing the same thing. And just like David, I, I, would, I would have a lot of moments mixed in that working out the issues, headspace. I have a lot of moments where I'm, I find it really, really hard to cling to the promise. Again, I'm probably the only honest one. And so in verse 10, David cries out again. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. 
The king is weak in this moment. And the bad guys, they're, they're beginning to circle around him as predators, right? But David clings all the more to his trust that God will eventually restore him and that all will be made right. David will stand strong once again and justice will eventually be carried out. And what a great story it is, right? But listen, church, this is one of the reasons why Jesus clearly stands as the greater David. Rather than regaining his strength and repaying the treachery that had been done against him, Jesus is totally different. No, Jesus cries out in his weak moment, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're not the same. Rather than pleading with the Father to get him out of the weak moment so that he can hurry up and finally vindicate himself, no, Jesus willingly places himself into the weak moment so that he can be forever reconciled to his enemies. The one who acted with perfect prudence as he considered the poor and the weak. Not, not merely this, the materially poor, not just the voiceless. No, the ones that have enslaved themselves to their own sin and shame. The ones who even maliciously circled around him as predators in his moment of weakness. Jesus takes the justice that is rightly owed to them upon himself and he pays it in full. David needs God to hurry up and get him out of his sickbed so that he can get on with working to make things right again. But Jesus lays his own life down with the expectation that the Father will eventually raise him up again after the work is done. And that's why in claiming Psalm 41.9 for himself, Jesus also gets to claim verses 11 through 13. Look at it. It says, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me on your pres- in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. David sees the finish line of a long life and a fruitful reign as the king of Israel. He's got a few more years. God's not done with him yet. God blesses his people. And so despite the circumstances in David's life, David trusts that his enemies will not prevail. Jesus, however, Jesus, however, claims this psalm for himself, and so he sees a finish line as forever reconciliation with the Father. Integrity will finally be vindicated for Jesus, I promise. But not so that he can eke out a few more years on on an earthly throne, but so that his kingdom is established from everlasting to everlasting. A kingdom where the poorest and the weakest, uh, the weakest, and even those who imagine themselves as malicious usurpers, they are fully and forever reconciled by the integrity and the intentional weakness of the good king. See, the reason, I don't know if you've done this math problem in your head yet as we've been reading through this, the reason why a consideration of the poor is an expectation upon the citizens of this kingdom is not because it is something that has earned you your citizenship. It's actually the exact opposite of that. You become a citizen of this kingdom precisely because the good king first considered you. He first considered me. And the king joyfully blesses those who turn around and seek to look just like him. He delights when his kingdom citizens start acting like the good king. So what do we do with all this? How can we respond to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, do you you see your utter weakness this morning? And I know that's 
a weird way to phrase that for people who've never bothered to think through it, but I think it's essential. Do you see your utter weakness this morning? Do you see what your sin and your best efforts have wrought? Because there is a king greater than David. He became weak in order to reconcile himself to a weak people. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are separated relationally from God, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that punishment death. It calls it hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that he, he makes us alive again, spiritually alive through the grace of Christ. The eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. He died on the cross as a, as a substitute, an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. And I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. You can respond to Jesus. But what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How can we respond? The same way we do every single time we encounter God's word, we repent of sin and we lean into what the text reveals about God, right? And this week, man, I think that takes the shape of dwelling on how we have already been considered before we go out and attempt a consideration of others. If they don't flow in that specific order, it's going to get awkward real quick. The balance is going to be wrong. Whether we wrongly fail to consider the poor or we wrongly exalt ourselves in our attempt, you get the gospel wrong, everything else will fall apart. So you have been considered before we turn around and consider. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside to give you space to respond. If you want to talk, let's talk. I'll be down there. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe you've been here for a little while now and God's made it pretty clear that it's time to uh, formally join our church family. We, we can talk about that too. There's a process for that. Um, maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized. It's time to do something about that. Let's go. I can talk about that too. Or maybe, maybe God has placed it on your heart to, to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, where maybe a place that's never even gone before or needs to go. And we can love to help you think through what those next steps are as well. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 41. Thank you for promises and honesty about the doubt. Thank you for promises of how you delight and even reward your people when they go chasing after doing what you would do. But also, thank you for giving us examples like David who are just honest. There's so many times in my life where circumstance and personality of others and the things that I think are important or worthy of chasing after <laughs> crowd out my trust that your promises are, are good and true. Remove that from me. Take away the distraction and the noise. Help me see your goodness. Thank you for sending Jesus to be a better king than even David, the one who, who doesn't repay the bad guys, but actually 
makes them his own. He calls them into his family and reconciles himself to them. Thank you for being the kind of king that reconciled a bad guy like me. We love you. Thank you for first loving and considering us. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Call people into your kingdom today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.